Hello again, my name's Jason Barnard and this is the Strange Room Podcast. Yeah, I've got really, really a great show lined up. Um, you'll probably recognise the voice on the first track we played. Maybe not the track itself, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a good one. It's uh, David Bowie and his uh, backing band The Buzz and Do Anything You Say. Uh, the reason I'm playing that track is that I've got John Hutch, Hutchinson here, here with me who um, played in, I think, counting four different incarnations of bands around David Bowie from the mid-60s into about 1973. Hutch has got a, a, a book out, Bowie and Hutch, talking about his time with David, so welcome, Hutch. Thank you, Jason. Nice to talk to you again. How did you uh, sort of hook up with with David and uh, in, into the buzz uh, back in I don't know was it sixty five or nineteen sixty six? Yeah, well the the actual date will be in my book, but I've forgotten it since I put it in the book. <laughs> Whatever it was, it was while I was waiting to go back to Sweden, where I've been playing with a Swedish band for a while, uh, and I had some kind of work permit issues that weren't sorted out, so I went to London just to. Uh, just to wait and have a look around, really. And I walked into the Marquee Club one afternoon. The Marquee Club was closed, but Jack Barry was there. It turned out that he was Jack Barry, the the manager of the Marquee Club. Just him there at the desk. I realized the place was closed, but I asked him if he thought he knew of anybody that might be looking for a guitar player. And he gave me a number straight away. He said, yes, I do know a young guy called... Uh, I think he might have even called him David Jones, and it was around the time when he, when David was changing his name from David Jones to David Bowie. But certainly as soon as I made arrangements to turn up at this audition, he was calling himself David Bowie. But anyway, the audition was a few days later at the Marquee Club, probably a Saturday afternoon, I think. And I just turned up with a Telecaster, and I was asked to go on stage with a band that was there. But the band declined, and <laughs> they decided that they would rather promote their band as a whole. So I, I had to go on stage on my own, um, which I didn't mind. And all I could do really was play a few riffs, and uh, somebody shouted out, "Play a bit of Bo Diddley." So I, I did a bit of that, and then straight away they shouted back, "Yes, thanks very much." Next, you know, and I thought, well, that's that. You know, I ain't gonna get that gig, but. Uh, as soon as I came off stage, uh, David's road manager, Spike Palmer, he came over and said, uh, David wants you in. Uh, and so I got the gig, and within a couple of weeks, we were rehearsing. And uh, not long after that, we were playing as David Bowie and the Buzz. Uh, I brought a friend of mine down from this area, from uh, from the East Yorkshire area, to play Hammond organ. That was Chow Boys. He brought his Hammond B3 organ and his Leslie cabinet down on the train from Scarborough. So we ended up with the band quite quickly. And David basically formed it after taking me on board. Uh, he took some other guys on that he, he spotted at the audition. East Yorkshire connection will uh, sort of keep coming up. Really, it's quite incredible the sort that 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 tie-in with uh, David's backing musicians. It does, yeah. It it really is amazing, really. But it it's a series of sort of coincidences. I was the first Yorkshire musician. Chow Boys was within weeks the second one, and then the next one would be John Cambridge, uh, who's still a friend of mine, and in fact he plays on my new EP, <laughs> completely independent of me, ended up playing drums with David. And then he was the connector, really, between the earlier days for me with the buzz and the later days when I, I joined the Spiders from Mars on the Aladdin Saint tours. That's three of us, four, five, that's maybe six of us altogether, I think. Fantastic. And uh, the the next track we've got today is Good Morning Girl. What what do you recall from those recording sessions? Well, I only really remember 
that I like this particular track. I'm glad that you picked it. Um, I can remember David saying to me, I want to scat on this. And I thought, oh, great. Play a bit of jazzy guitar on it, you know. And the other things really I remember is that Tony Hatch never came through to talk to us. He was, he stayed in the control room and sort of sent messages out a couple of times. And we just sat and played like session men, really. So it wasn't wasn't a particularly uplifting kind of uh, business recording with uh, Tony Hatch and Pie, but the results were okay, I, I guess. They were interesting enough. Chow Boys was a great piano player and organ player, and I'm glad there's a, a record as a way that Chow played, as well as a bit of my Telecaster on there. And they were great guys, you know, Deck, the bass player, and Johnny Eager, the drummer. Lovely bunch of guys to be to be working with, you know. So I was quite happy to, to be doing that for for a while, yeah. Let's play the second track today, which is Good Morning Girl by David Bowie and the Buzz, but I don't think the Buzz uh, were credited, actually, on the actual single sleeve. No, that's probably right. Session men, you know. Cause I'm on my way to rest my head And I've lost a mind that I used to have And I don't have a dime to spare Hey, hey, good morning, girl Hey, hey, good morning, girl Hey, hey, good morning, girl But I can't pass the time of day So go tell the man that collects your juice That you saw a guy without any shoes Who would do the job if he was felt that way Hey, hey, good morning, girl single uh, from David Bowie and the Buzz which is I Dig Everything um, do you recall anything about that song? I thought it was a bit strange to be honest which a lot of David's songs over all the years really you would have to say they're a little bit different to the other things that are being released so I thought well it's a bit strange but uh, that's okay he's, he's breaking new ground in a way the songs and the way he wants to do them slightly different you know I, I probably just wanted to be another of the uh, London bands that was a rhythm and blues band, you know, John Baldry and Brian Auger and all those bands. So David's thing was a little bit different to that. The other thing I remember is we never got paid. I mean, obviously the band got paid, but <laughs> somebody else, they used the money for something else, I think. Those were the days. Let's play uh, I Dig Everything by David Bowen the Buzz then. 
Uh, another single from Pi in That's the B side of I Dig Everything, which is I'm Not Losing Sleep. Did you play uh, many, many shows with uh, David in that period? It wasn't too many. You know, I, I, I'd hate to say whether it was half a dozen or a dozen, probably more like a dozen shows, probably could have been more than that. And mostly I remember the Marquee Club. We, we started off with a residency that they called the Bowie Showboat. And it was an evening show and then they put it on on a Sunday afternoon later, Sunday afternoon, which was a bit unusual. But I can remember there was always people there. I seem to remember one of mus- two musicians coming in. Somebody told me, oh, John Baldry's in, but I never saw him. I remember guys coming up to talk to me about guitar playing. And I seemed to make a few contacts for as a musician while I was in there. And I made use of the, uh, the fact that we were in the Marquee Club group of bands, if you like, to be able to go in and get in for nothing to watch the other bands, you know, any night of the week I wanted to, so that was that was handy. But it wasn't such a long time. I, the money never really worked out. We'd play a few gigs and we'd get some money, but it certainly wasn't enough to live on properly, and I had a family to support. So basically when the money got just too low uh, and there was an odd time where we didn't see any 
money come through. I realised that the thing wasn't really going to go anywhere. So I just had to leave. I had to go back to Scarborough and get a proper job for a while. They did go on, on without me for a while. The Buzz uh, got a, another guitar player in, a Scottish guy, I think. Billy Gray, maybe, who I never met, but he took my place for a while. So it was a fairly short-lived thing with David Bowie and the Buzz, but it was very exciting. The ones I do remember, were we played um, one of the racing circuits. I believe it was Silverstone, and it was some kind of Radio London Awards festival, you know. Tom Jones and the Squires played. And I also remember the California Ballroom Dunstable. We must have done that more than once, because I remember that. And uh, it was an exciting time. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's finish off the the, the buzz period uh, of your time with uh, David. With uh, I'm not losing sleep. Yeah. Yes, I read the morning papers telling me that. If you think I'm gonna call and think again Though I dress in rags, I'm richer Though I eat from tins, I'm healthier Though I live in slums, I'm purer than you, my friend David Bowie and the Buzz, and I'm not losing sleep. So, so Hutch, you talked about kind of going going back up north because the the, the money was tight to say the least. Uh, so, you did this this sort of gravitational pull for various reasons back, back to David. So, how how did you sort of get to connect with David again? Well, the second time 
it was really that I, I decided to to go to Canada. When I when I left the buzz, I came back uh, up north and went back to the day job, you know. And I was, I suppose, I I was attracted by the idea of of going to Canada, and I had a contact that helped me get a job with Air Canada in Montreal at Dorval Airport in their engineering department. You know, I took a, a job as a kind of uh, I think they called me a, a learner or something. It, I wasn't an apprentice as such because I'd come through that already. Um, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to get me started, and uh, that was a, you know a good job. But I, I played, I had to, I had to play a, f- a few gigs when I had nights off because basically I worked a sort of evening, quite late night shift quite often. So it cut down the amount of music I could play, and for one reason or another, it didn't work out. I would have stayed, but my wife wasn't happy, and I could see her point really. Um, but it, I didn't really want to come back from Canada, but I did. And after we'd done that, I suppose I sort of thought I might like to go back to, to London. But it was really just uh, the off chance, and I got in touch with David. And I was sort of, again, just pure chance. David's guitar player at the time, Tony Hill, was leaving uh, his little group that he called Turquoise. Now, Turquoise was David and Hermione Farthingale and Tony Hill. And I think Tony being a rock guitar player wasn't too happy with the acoustic stuff really so David said come on down and have a listen got some great stuff going on you know I, I went down and just went for it straight away I loved it I'd been playing a lot of acoustic stuff anyway in Canada you know the, the Canadian thing at the time and probably since has always been quite acoustic you know at the time it was Ian and Sylvia and was, uh, Neil Young was just coming up Leonard Cohen was knocking about I suppose I had an acoustic guitar with me. Anyway, I didn't actually possess an electric guitar. So I just went down with my acoustic guitar and we joined up again. And he, as soon as I joined, he changed the name of it to Feathers. So it was Bowie and Hutch and Hermione as Feathers. So again, it was just a fickle finger of fate, really. I recall there was a recording session as a as a trio that that you did, and uh, was that was that where you recorded Chingling? Yes, that was that's right. It really, was David's experimental sort of fairly arty idea. Parallel to that, Ken Pitt, his manager at that time, uh, wanted to promote a film at the time. It's become since a video and a CD and what have you, of course, um, a DVD rather. Ken Pitt wanted these songs of David's to. Uh, get a record deal with and put the movie out with and all that. But David at the same time was producing one or two other songs that maybe might or might not have made the film uh, or his album. So he, he kind of had the two things in, in parallel. David Bowie's career as a, a singer and his experiment with Feathers. So the Chingling song was, was one that we would play on stage as Feathers. And we ended up recording it, yes, along with uh, the other songs that are on the Love You Till. Tuesday movie. Marvellous. Uh, well, let's play Chingling uh, by Feathers and David Bowie, of course. And there are various different mixes and versions of this. Uh, the version I've got is from the 2010 reissue of the album, uh, David Bowie album, the original, the debut one. Yes, uh, Jason, the thing, interesting thing about that is that there is at least one version that doesn't have David singing on it at all, uh, just Hermione and me. Uh, with David saying just harmonies. He doesn't actually take a vocal at all. That was the way that they mixed it afterwards. Very, very recently, only a matter of weeks ago, 
somebody put me and Hermione in touch. So I, I've spoken to her a few times. And Hermione's recollection of these days is quite interesting. It's very much the same as my recollection, but with some added added bits and pieces, you know. I understand exactly what Hermione means when she said to me, a lot of people have got it wrong about David and Hermione's relationship. Uh, she mentioned particularly that she'd been in touch with Paul Molly to complain about his his treatment of her in his recent book. The general idea is that Hermione just left David, broke his heart and went, and then disappeared. But Hermione's point is that she was a working dancer. You know, she, she wanted to make a career as a dancer. So she left, not for money reasons or affairs of the heart or anything like that. It was just that she got a job that she thought she should do. And so she went and did the, the part in the uh, the movie that she made, Song of Norway movie. That she, I think she just danced, possibly sang in it. I'm not sure, but she danced in it. And subsequently made a career as a dancer. In my account of uh, David and Hermione in, in my book, I basically said I'd heard that Hermione went up the Amazon and disappeared, you know. <laughs> but apparently she, she did go up the Amazon. She, she told me about that. But she married and she had children and she became a teacher and uh, lived and still does live in Bristol. They never really fell out. Uh, they lost touch, but they got back in touch. So, you know, all three of us really have got David uh, and Hermione and myself have uh, good memories. As he sighed, I wish I played the doodah horn. The doodah horn is fine. I'd sell my house and burn a coach to make this daydream mine. Doodah do, doodah, doodah do, doodah, doodah do, doodah, doodah do. Na, na, na. 
You mentioned uh, the the film that became Love You till Tuesday, and I think it was you, you and Hermione were asked to dub over some backing vocals on David's song "Sell Me a Coat." Yes, that's right. That was kind of not feathers, although it was the feathers lineup. Uh, Hermione feels quite strongly about this that it, we were just backing singers, really. If we'd done something as feathers, I think it would have been quite different. So those performances were David Bowie with his songs, with me and Hermione as backing singers, really. Shingling song was probably the closest to actual feathers. But yeah, the backing vocals on Sell Me a Coat and one or two others. I liked them when they came out, yeah. I've actually not heard them for a lot a lot of years and then I heard them again recently. And I was quite surprised how I was singing in those days. I seem to remember David getting me to sing rather than um, to try and sing something like halfway as like as good as as he can sing. Because David, you know, was a real singer. He had some power and control in his voice and quality. And I think maybe on some of the tracks when I sang with him, I tried my best to be like the other Walker brother, you know. Maybe not Scott Walker, but the other one.
excellent. Now, uh, we're moving on to a pivotal track, and there are so many different versions of this song, including different versions that, that you're on, actually. And um, um, so the version I've picked of Space Oddity is now classed as the demo version, or the official demo version, which is on the Space Oddity reissue. Yes, that's it. you're right. It's interesting. When somebody contacted me, we didn't actually talk directly uh, about this, but he, he put a friend, of, a mutual friend, on to ask me about it and told me that he wanted me to, to get a royalty from it, which was a, the first as far as that, that song went. So I was really happy with that. And then when I heard it, I realized that David had... Had, slight, had remixed it, so it wasn't actually the just bare bones demo that we did first. It was a subsequent subsequent remix of the same, I would say, the same tracks, but with some other things added. I think it's the same vocal tracks. Uh, I don't remember demoing on the Revox more than once, but of course it has been, as you say, released and slightly changed and remixed. But yeah, reading Bowen Hutch, you, you talk about how originally the song was... Um written as kind of a, a bit of a duet with two different vocals? Well, it wasn't just a bit of a duet. It was definitely written as a duet because I was ground control and he was Major Tom. When he put this single out, of course, he was both ground control and Major Tom, which is fair enough. But yeah, it wasn't just a duet because he wanted to hear two voices. It was a conversation between ground control and the guy in the, in the spaceship, which again was a bit unusual, you know, a conversation. I've read that you, I mean, obviously it's it's David's song, but you were there as, as David was writing the song and you were kind of trading cards. Yeah, it's funny. You know, over the years I've seen one or two journalists have sort of said, Hutch played, uh, Hutch wrote, part wrote some of this song and stuff like that. But I've never said that. What I, I, I will say is that we did collaborate on just about everything that we played because he would bring me the song and say, listen to this. And I would say, or even just the way that I would play the chords that he showed me. He would sometimes say, yeah, let, right, let, let's use that. On Space Odyssey, particularly, there are major sevenths in the uh, chord changes, which probably at the time I would have said, Why do we, that sounds like it should be a major seventh. And he said, oh, how do you, how do you play that? You know, But it was it is literally just the chords and the voicings that I would have contributed. If I'd known it, it would have made several millions. I would have said, can I have a credit on this? And, and I probably would have made a lot of money. But, you know, at the time, there were never any uh, lyrics, you know. And there were definitely David's songs, you know. Well, let's uh, let's play Space uh, Oddity. Yeah, listen out for me. I'm starting off. That's not David's voice. That's me, ground control. <laughs> Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Eight Seven Commencing countdown, engines on Four Three Check ignition and may God's love be with you
This is ground control to Major Tom You've really made the grade And the papers want to know whose shirt you wear Now it's time to leave the capsule if you dare This is Major Tom to ground control I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in a most peculiar way And the stars look very different today Fantastic. Now we've got another, I think it's again class as a demo, again from that 2009 Space Oddity uh, album uh, reissue. 
and this this one's a, a, an occasional dream and um, stripped back uh, with acoustics it works really well yes I like that was it a bit like Space Oddity way where, where you kind of were there as, as David was writing it etc no not in that case no it was more that uh, we would have all I can really remember is that we went in to rehearse how we would do backing vocals or uh, harmony vocals, you know. No, that, that's very much, uh, David, that was complete when he played that one to me. Hutch, we're moving to um, I think the, the next couple of songs have, have got your lead vocals on uh, and um, they're actually from uh, an unreleased I don't know if you want to call it a demo tape from well you'll you'll have to you'll have to correct me here because I'm sort of relying on the internet it says recorded in David's house in April 69 the first song is uh, life is a circus um, I mean that's 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 a lovely song itself what can you tell me about um, you and David recording in his in his uh, his house in, in those days? People have talked about these these tracks in recent years to me, and there's one or two things that are a bit strange because I was in 
Canada in 67, came back in 68. Uh, so I guess I was in London with David in 69. Do remember that uh, Tony Visconti had given David a song by a band, an American band, I believe, called The Gin, D-J-I-N-N, maybe. And it was a cover, you know. So we didn't always, he wouldn't always just do his own songs. He would take any songs by somebody else that he liked and, and wanted to do. Even back with the buzz, we would do Mamas and Papas songs and we would do Smoking Robinson songs, what have you. And in the acoustic days, as well as Space Oddity and what have you, David and I, after Hermione had left, he wanted to continue as a duo. We did a few gigs and we also did some some demo tapes and they were certainly at the same in the same room that David had uh, lived in with Hermione. Uh, I know that he moved to Beckenham, but I believe I never went to uh, his house in Beckenham. So, you know, for the people that are interested, I believe these were recorded before David left the little flat that he'd shared with Hermione. And so it was just a demo. Hermione wasn't there, so we did it with the two of us. And we did Space Oddity demo. And we did uh, quite a few songs on this borrowed Revox. I don't know who we borrowed it from. David just told me it was to send to some guy in America that might be interested, you know. I heard later, years later, that the tape had gone to Ahmed Ertgun, um, who was a bigwig in the recording business, record boss. You'll probably know which label he... Yeah, is it Atlantic? It was something huge, yeah, it became. Yeah. Whether, uh, whether it was sort of that big in those days, I don't know. But I'd, I'd read, people have told me that he was well pleased with it and was interested in the duo, you know. But of course, by the time David got that message back, I'd, I'd already left, you know. Those things were intended to uh, get us signed up as the UK's answer to Simon and Garfunkel, you know. But Garfunkel had already left. Talks to me 
Boofs and all. Yeah. Um, all we can say is that we're not opposed to having other instruments on the LP. We're not, as you can see, we're not the strict folk group, but a contemporary scene. And um, I think we like the kind of Mellotron sound type instruments. And a lot of things. What else do we like, Hodge? Not too much. Not too much, yeah. No. Just, a, you know, an easy sound. Except, of course, for singles. And a good bass player. And a good bass player. Really hot bass player. Not too much. Now we've got another song from uh, for, from that sort of demo session, if you want to call that. <laughs> uh, it's a love song, which I think is uh, one of Leslie Duncan's uh, penned tracks. And again, I think you're singing on this one, but it's a great song, actually. It is a great song, yeah. I always liked it. After uh, I'd left and come back up north when I started playing a few little little gigs on my own, I still still played it. Uh, and I played it for years. I could I could probably play it now. Because, uh, yeah, as you say, it's a lovely song. The words I have to say may well be simple, but they're true. Until you give your love, there's nothing more than we can do. 
this song. It's called Love Song. I had a sick G-string a lovely time. Now we've got the uh, the final track from from that sort of demo tape, and it's a song called Conversation Piece. And um, when we were exchanging emails before the podcast, I was kind of kind of talking about that this is a song that that David's revisited uh, a few times, including uh, uh, an aborted album that he did where he was recovering some of his early tracks called called Toy, which uh, I think most of the tracks are, are out now. But it's interesting that you know some of the songs that you were. Uh, you were playing, you know, came out, you know, when, when David was much more famous. Yes, right. I didn't know about that, to be honest. I've never really been a what I'd have to call a Bowie freak. I have several friends who are Bowie freaks. Even, I maybe only possess one or two Bowie albums. But I think, in general, I'd, things have happened. David's released this and that, and his career has expanded, changed, forever changing. But... I'm I'm nothing like some of my friends who uh, who know everything that he ever did. So there there are things that I played on that I've forgotten I played on. So yeah, anything you've got that I'm on, <laughs> I'm gonna enjoy listening to it. Before we go on to the sort of final chapter of of you and David, if you want to call it that, you went back up north again. Yeah, I generally would re- rebound to Yorkshire. That's right. You know, my family's always been around Scarborough. I've tried to escape from Scarborough more times than I can think of. I, I quite often just bounce back, and of course now nowadays I'm living not far away in the Yorkshire Wolds. But yes, I, whichever period you're talking about, when it was over with David, I would have bounced back to Scarborough and got a proper job again, you know, one that paid. <laughs> Don't know me And they walk into 
as you kind of were talking about in terms of bouncing back and forth, that the last time um, that you kind of bounced back with, with David was, was uh, when he was at his height of fame, really, as in the sort of Ziggy Stardust era and, and, and with the spiders from Mars. How did you get to be an auxiliary spider, if you want to call it that? Yes, well, I would call it auxiliary spider because it was just a, an extension of his band. He, as you know, he had the three-piece band with Mick and Trevor and, and Woody. And then they added Mike Garson. And really adding Mike Garson was the catalyst for the the way to go, you know. And Mike was a great piano player. Once you've got that addition, then David's ambitions, and Mick's really musical ambition anyway, demanded more than that lineup. So to do an album that wanted other people in and to uh, to be able to tour it, to be able to put it on for people on live gigs, he needed he needed backing singers and he needed a horn section. So from David's point of view, he didn't want to have to play 12-string. From Mick's point of view, he wanted a rhythm guitarist and a 12-string guitarist to make the live gigs sound like the records. And uh, David did a, an interview for the Melody Maker talking about this. And I bought the Melody Maker every week, just like all musicians did in those days. David's picture on the front of the Melody Maker, and he's talking about going to America, but that he needed a bigger band, and he was going to take on some horns and a guy to play 12-string. And I thought, well, if I'd known about that, <clears throat> I would have uh, given him a shout. So I thought I was too late, but I thought, well, I'll give him a shout anyway. So I called, I had lost his number, didn't have his current number. So I called John Cambridge, our contact man again, and Johnny said, okay, I'll get back to you. And I guess Johnny must have asked David or Mick or both of them, can I put Hutch in touch? Next thing that happened, Mick called me at work. You know, I picked the phone up thinking it was some guy complaining about some drawings I'd sent him. And it was Mick. Uh, and he said, he asked, he said, have you still got your Telecaster? And I said, yeah, I've got a Telecaster. He said, David wants a word. And it was as simple as that. Again, just pure chance. I was amazed because I thought it's very close to the date when they were going to set off. But David just said, can you come down next week? We're in the studio. Come and see us there. So I went down to the studio in Wardour Street, took half a day off work or whatever it was, and agreed to join. In fact, if I hadn't had to go back to work, Mick said, if you didn't have to go back, you could play on these sessions with us. But it didn't happen. I had to go back to Scarborough. So I didn't play on the Aladdin Sane album, but I did play it on, you know, on the live gigs. The song that we're playing is uh, Watch That Man from from the uh, Spiders from Mars film uh, soundtrack. Uh, but you, you kind of toured the world then. Yeah, I mean, we that's right. We It was an American tour to start with, so uh, we didn't actually rehearse or even try out. Nobody auditioned me for that. We had to move, or they had to move quite quickly, and so did I, really. Gave them a week's notice at work and uh, met Mick in uh, Beckenham, and then we went to New York, and we did hire the studio in, big studio to rehearse in in New York and uh, we just ran through everything there and I said to Mick I haven't been listening to this stuff you know I've heard it from time to time but I haven't got the albums he said oh no problem he said I'm, I'm writing them all out and, and we've got some big music stands so you can just just read the chords and that's what we did with all those things great well let's play Watch That Man and I think you're on backing vocals on that one yeah the backing vocals part of the job became became quite interesting because I think it was Robin, the sound man, he said, you sound like cats on heat. Because Jeff McCormack and I did the, the backing vocals, and Mick, and sometimes Trevor, I think. But basically, we weren't what they hoped for. 
I think David's initial idea was to get some proper backing singers, some girls maybe, and take them out on tour as well. But in the end, they decided that they'd make do uh, with what me and... And I'm not a falsetto specialist, you know, let's face it. The backing vocals, yeah. I always hope they just didn't mix them up too, too high.
David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars watched that man from the uh, Ziggy Stardust film. Now we're moving to another uh, track from from that show, Changes. I mean, what was it like? Like, I mean, the, the period in, in in David's career that was very different to, you know, the earlier carnations when you were with David, where it was much more low key. This was sort of at the height of his fame. Yeah, it it was it was very very exciting. It was great fun. It, it's the best I can say. It was great fun. When I uh, got to New York. I hadn't seen David at all. We we spoke on the phone, and uh, he wasn't in Beckenham when I got there. He'd already taken off for New York, so I met up again with David in his hotel room when we got to New York, and he was very much like, well, we're just old old friends, you know. So I I, I spent a, an evening, a part of an evening, with him talking about stuff, and he played me he played me what he was listening to. He was actually listening to Roxy Music, brand new album by this new outfit from Newcastle. Have you heard of them? You know, I hadn't heard of them. And we talked about what we were going to do. Mick and I also hadn't seen each other for, for some time. So I was kind of joining old friends I hadn't seen for a long time. So that was very easy. Mick made me very welcome. He was next. He was the band leader, really. He always had time for me and the other guys. I made sure that uh, we were happy with the way things were going. So it was a good team, you know. But as you say, it was a, he was living in a different world. David was uh, beginning to be a huge star. On that particular tour, I would say in America, that's what made him. The Spiders had toured the year before or even earlier in that same year, I'm not sure. In 73, that sort of second tour with the full band, the nine-piece band, was the tour that, that broke America. And we certainly, and he certainly lived like he was already a big star, even if maybe the books hadn't balanced yet. Uh, people certainly treated him like a star. And we all travelled limousines and stayed in the the biggest hotels, you know. And it felt like uh, David was a big star, right? Yeah. It was completely different to the other days. And, of course, we never really saw very much of each other once we started gigging and travelling. Maybe in New York for the first few days, uh, we did hang out a bit. I, I went to... Uh, a club or two with David and, and Jeff McCormack. Uh, we went to Manny's. Uh, we went to Manny's shop to look at guitars, actually. Uh, but we, we also went to uh, what's that famous place in in New York? Uh, the New York Dolls were playing. I also went to the Village Gate, I think it was called, or something like that. And we saw, we watched Charlie Mingus and his band play, jazz group. And probably most memorable, me and David and Jeff went to Radio City Music Hall to watch the Rockettes dancing. And there were some acts on, and I can't remember what they were, but the Rockettes, I remember very clearly, because they were a kind of, you know, the old television toppers dance group, old-fashioned vaudeville-type dance group, I suppose you'd call it. And they used lights, and they used steam curtains and moving stages and stuff. And they also had what looked like a gyroscope that came down from the roof of the stage. And it came down spinning and glittering, and David said, I've got to use that. And I thought, Jesus, what does he mean, use that? Uh, but I found out when we did the opening night, the first gig of the American tour in 1973, Radio City Music Hall, he entered the stage from up above, hanging on to this gyroscope thing. And to be honest, I hadn't heard about it. I knew that we were rising up out of the basement on one of these moving stages with a steam curtain all around us. But then the next thing, as David arrived, he came down from the roof. 
And of course, these kind of things and various other things really launched David as a as a performer in America. You know, not only did they like the music on the radio, but they were starting to hear about his uh, his stage shows. He had the clothes, the costumes, the songs. It wasn't just another rock band turning up in denim, you know. Great. Well, let's uh, let's play changes from that that famous Hammersmith gig. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I always liked that one. I never knew how many ch 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 chas there was because I didn't have the record. <laughs> so from time to time, I would probably put the extra one in. Streets, and every time I thought I got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. Then I turned myself to face me, but I never caught a glimpse of how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. Try to change their worlds. Uh, they're immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through.
Next, we've got a, a pivotal uh, track from that live show. It, it's the moment where uh, David as Ziggy kind of declared his retirement. I've read that that came as a big surprise to much of the band. Yes, it was. It was a surprise. I, su- I suppose many of us, most of us, had wondered sort of what was going to happen next because we were booked to play another American tour. You know, the management, the main man management had asked us all if we could leave for New York again on some date. And uh, we were hearing about the tour was going to be much bigger than the one we'd done previously. And we might be going to Australia. You know, there was talk about stuff. Something was bothering me a bit because I realized that he hadn't got a new album to tour. And if we went back straight away, we'd be doing Aladdin Sane and the old albums again. And that didn't really ring true with me. Also, maybe I'd got a bit tired of the doing the same stuff. But having said that, we, we all actually had been told and believed it that we were going. So David's announcement was a complete surprise to all of us. But Mick, Mick Ronson knew because he had to. And I suspect that one or two others, possibly Jeff McCormack knew and possibly Robin the sound man knew because they had things to, to arrange, including the surprise ending. So I certainly didn't know until David came over to me. He wouldn't normally come into our dressing room or look me up for anything before a gig, yeah, but he, he did. He made a point of coming up to me, catching me on my own somewhere backstage and saying to me, Hush, don't start the encore on 12 string, which is what I did for Rock and Roll Suicide. Don't start it until I come right up to you or come towards you and point at you. Okay, you got it. Don't start until I tell you to start. I said, yeah, I got it. Okay, no problem. I thought he must be going to say, thanks very much. We've had a great tour. You know, this is, this has been a great tour. See you later. So I didn't know it was a farewell speech as such. Uh, so, yeah, when he, he said it, we all just looked at each other. And he pointed at me and I started playing. Forgot about it until afterwards. And then, of course, afterwards, we all talked about it. People like Trevor and Woody were obviously more were devastated because uh, it, they'd been fired on stage. For me, it wasn't so bad because I was probably ready for another break from it. Anyway. Okay, and uh, you, you described uh, an after-tour party as well, and that kind of it's almost like a it's a strange atmosphere that you recall. Yes, it was a bit strange, but really it was only strange in the car going over there because. I went over in a limousine to the Cafe Royal, in a limousine with Mick, not with David. Uh, he'd, he'd gone in another car, but I know that I went with Mick and we really didn't speak. Nobody really said anything. I can't remember who else was with us, but I, I don't think that uh, Trevor and Woody went along. Probably Jeff came with us. Uh, but basically, that was the strange time. Uh, at the At the party itself, I just forgot about it all. It was just a party, you know. And it was such a, uh, an amazing night, uh, you know, party, that I forgot about it until next day, really, until I got home anyway. And as soon as I walked into the Cafe Royal, I, I met up with somebody that I knew, a folk singer, songwriter, called Colin Scott, who was an old uh, friend. Uh, and Colin was with a contact of Ken Pitts, really, because he was with Nina of the duo... Nina and Frederick and of course I was pretty amazed to meet up with her there was all kinds of stars there you know Paul McCartney and Ringo and you name it and so it wasn't a question of which star would you like to go talk to because it didn't really work like that 
I just went and sat down with Colin and Nina. And I occasionally I bumped into Ringo as we, you know, moved about. And Ringo spoke to me briefly. Uh, and I can't remember speaking to anybody else. But they were all there on the dance floor at the tables. Pretty amazing party. So all thoughts of, oh, I'm, the tour has been cancelled didn't, really, uh, didn't really hit me at all until next morning and I woke up and realized that I was going to drive back to Scarborough. <laughs> you know, I'd got my car in the hotel basement because the tour had finished and I was going back to Scarborough anyway. So I was quite philosophical about it, but the actual announcement on stage was pretty much a shock uh, to everybody, bar maybe half a dozen people. And remember, we didn't even know it was being filmed. They filmed and recorded it off the desk without most of us knowing it was being filmed. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the world, that's showbiz. Everybody, this has been one of the greatest tours of our life. We really, I, I first, I'd like to thank the band. I'd like to thank our road crew and I'd like to thank our lighting people. Uh, of all the shows on this tour, this, this particular show will remain with us the longest because not only, is it, not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. Thank you. Time takes a cigarette, puts it in your mouth, pull on your finger, then another finger, then your cigarette. Well, the wall to wall is calling, it lingers, but still you forget. Oh, you're a rock and roll suicide. You're too young to lose it But you're too old to lose it And the clock waits so patiently on your song Well, you walk past the cafe that you can't eat when you've lived too long Oh, 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 oh. you're a rock and roll suicide now the ship breaks a snarling As you stumble across the room But the day breaks instead So you hurry home Don't let the sunlight blast your shadow Don't let the milk flow bind your mind They're so natural, religiously
Bye, we love you. You were still exchanging emails with David uh, until the sort of period that he passed away as well. Yes, that was a that was the biggest shock. That was a bigger shock than being fired on stage at Hammersmith. I can tell you because over the years we have kept in touch, but not not much. You know, I I know that most of the people I know that were in touch with David over the years say the same thing. His his emails would just be shortened to the point, but he would always respond. You know. When I told him that I was in Azerbaijan when I lived and worked there for a short time, he he was quite interested in that. And he responded and wanted to know how the hell I'd end, ended up there. But since then, you know, things would come up. I, I might send him, I, I remember sending him my first CD, which was just really a demo. And he came back and he said, great playing, Hutch, you know, and something else, uh, which I always appreciated. And same with my daughter's stuff when I sent him that. He he said, very talented girl, you know. But there would just be one-liners, so I ne- we never got into much of a, a conversation in, in more recent years. So I guess uh, all that happened really in the more recent times is that I went to see John Cambridge playing with the band in a pub in Driffield. And Johnny said, I'm going to send David a selfie. And so he did it. And I was holding the Bowie and Hutch book, which Johnny wanted me to sign for him anyway. And he sent the selfies. Uh, and he, he said um, to David, he'd sent, um, do you remember these old, these two old kids? David came straight back with something about that stig backwards and uh, LOL, which I thought, well, pop stars don't say LOL, do they? So anyway, it was a nice little reply back. Uh, and I thought no more of it. He was still responding to us as he would normally do, just a little one-liner. Before Christmas, uh, a painter, a friend of mine, Alan Hydes, he lives in uh, Mallorca these days, but he paints lots of well-known people. And he's well-respected uh, as a painter. And I know David had met him. Alan asked, had been asked if he would paint a portrait of the icon of our age for the National Portrait Gallery in London. And I, he said, do you think David would be interested? And I said, I'm pretty sure he would be interested. At least he, I'm pretty sure he would appreciate being asked. So I sent David a message uh, asking, reminding him that he'd met Alan Hydes. And he quite possibly knew of Alan Hydes because uh, he painted some, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and 
I can't remember. Ted Heath, I remember seeing a portrait of his. He'd done portraits of various people. I thought David would certainly not uh, mind me asking him. I didn't put Alan in touch because I never, ever gave David's email address away, as uh, he'd asked me not to. But I told Alan I'd get in touch and let him know what David came back with, and then put him in touch. I heard no more, and I was a bit surprised that David hadn't come back. I thought, well, maybe he's thinking about it. He would never just ignore something like that. He would at least send me a one-liner, you know, not interested, enough pictures of me sort of thing. Or, some, or yes, he's interested, I don't know. So I thought about sending him, <laughs> sending him a reminder, you know, what about this portrait then, you know? And I was considering it on that morning. My wife phoned me and said, uh, David Bowie died. And that's why he hadn't replied to me. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And um, you're, you're, you're now kind of working on an updated version of Bowie and Hutch as well. Yes, I kind of thought that uh, I should, you know, have the the proper ending, if you like. Uh, it's quite easy to do a second edition and write about uh, the ending, I guess, because of the way it's happened and because of the way life has changed, really, since 2014 when I put the book out, right at the end of 2014. Uh, I've been through quite a lot of uh, changes, too. So I really, I thought I'd just bring it up to date. They persuaded me not to call it the final edition. <laughs> I understand that. But I kind of wanted to pay respect to David in the way that I see it now, you know. And maybe I can put a few things right in it. Hermione's bits and pieces that she's told me, maybe I can put that in. John Cambridge, people get a lot of stuff wrong about Johnny. He was a real good friend of David's as well. And I suppose, uh, mostly though, it's, it's the ending. I wanted to uh, update that. So, yeah, within, I don't know, later on this year, maybe sometime before the new year, uh, the second edition should be out. You're describing Bowie and Hutch, obviously, you went back to Scarborough, and I, you kind of continue to, to play as well, and still still play to, to this day. And, yeah, so let, let's talk about the, the, the new EP. Um, there's a song uh, that, that we're going to finish the show called Standing Room, uh, that's that's excellent. Uh, tell us about the 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 EP and and that song itself and, and what it means to you. I mean, as you say, I I would always play. You know, it it doesn't really matter whether you you're playing to thousands of people or thirty or forty people. You know, you, as a player, you still get the same thing. If you, if you're playing with people that you like playing with and you like the stuff you're playing, the size of the gig doesn't make much difference. Remember when you're on a big stage, all you've got is a little bit that's lit up, you know. Um, so I've, I've never been able to give it up. And to be honest, uh, at my age, a lot of people, uh, and, and I'm quite sure a lot of people think, well, he should have packed it in by now, you know. Leave it with the kids and all this kind of thing. Because my daughter's very talented and uh, I, I helped her uh, when she was touring in the early days. And people would say, oh, you don't want to bring your dad along, you know. And I do understand that. <laughs> but uh, from my point of view, I'm just a guitar player. I just like playing guitar. So I never really have thought myself much of a songwriter. I've always written them, but I don't kind of have to write them all the time. I'm quite happy to 
to play Django Reinhardt tunes or anything that I hear that I like, you know. But I, I do write songs, and every now and then I get uh, something or other makes me want to write a few. And I suppose, particularly Standing Room on this EP and a couple of other songs, but they came along because I've uh, suddenly you realize that uh, you're not going to live forever. And that doesn't really happen to people until they get into their later years, you know. It maybe occurs to people, but they don't really consider it. And so as you get older, you accept that uh, time may well be running out, which is the first line of that song, actually. So I guess I wrote that song particularly um, about where I'm at now. All the best with the uh, the, the next edition of uh, Bowie and Hutch and, uh, and obviously the old hat EP of which we're playing Standing Room. So thank you very much, Hutch. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jason. it all been all about time will tell in time there is no doubt and in the meantime I'm still dreaming does the dream time have no meaning and will I get to heaven am I in with a shout is there a crowd color black to the million micro size on the dark side of the moon if it's a final destination I'd say we must presume they gotta be running out of space and there's only standing room
Dance it all the 